This is Josh Barrow, and this is Very Serious, the podcast. Popularism is the idea that you win elections by doing popular things and talking about them, and by not doing unpopular things, or at least trying not to draw too much attention to them. This idea sounds obvious, but some people disagree with it. In recent years, there's been a fashion for the idea that you win elections primarily by motivating your base, that you need to do things that people on your side care a lot about, even if those things are unpopular, so that they will show up and vote for you. And that doing unpopular things doesn't cost you that much because few voters can be persuaded to change sides anyway by you or by an opponent who might point out that you're doing something unpopular. Now, I will lay my cards on the table. Popularism is correct, and this base motivation theory is wrong. In fact, it misuses the concept of a base. A base is inherently motivated and it votes every time. That's what makes it the base. There are marginal voters who vote only sometimes, but they don't look as much like the base as the base would like to think. They tend to be less ideological than regular voters, and so a purer, more ideological version of your party isn't likely to draw them out to vote. And besides, in practice, vote switching by swing voters drives a lot more of the change, at least in presidential elections, than changes in who comes out to vote. All of that said, popularism isn't as easy as it sounds. Uh, and today I've invited Matt Iglesias to talk with me about how to implement it. Matt writes the slow, boring newsletter on Substack, and I appreciate him describing his appearance here today as, quote, the most ambitious crossover event, unquote. Hi, Matt. Thanks for being here. Hi. Good to be here. So uh, suppose you're talking to a politician who wants to be popular. Have I described the popularism formula correctly, that you do popular things and talk about them, don't do unpopular things, or if you must do them, do them as quietly as possible? Yeah. I mean, I, it's in particular, you know, what you talk about, I think, is really important. What is salient uh, in the media? Because this is the the thing that I, I, I think people sometimes mishear me as claiming that, you know, voters are these like incredible information processors who have detailed opinions about every single issue stance that people have taken and that they're then like diving deep into the weeds and they're like, ah, yes, you know, I really enjoy this guy's, you know, education plan, but I disagree with him on, on abortion. Um, that's not true. Like nobody thinks that. Um, and so people are right that like, there's this big crazy maw of like media, whatever. Um, and people are, you know, uh, gaining vibes uh, from the culture about what's going on. And, and so I think, I think the vibes people are right on that level. But then the question is, is like, what are we talking about? You know, what is front of mind right now? And which politicians are on the right side of public opinion about the topics that are front of mind? And that that really matters. You know, when Democrats pivot to this voting rights strategy, right? I mean, what they have done is taken the bet that making people think more about uh, the voting rights issue will be good for them in some way or another. I mean, there are different ways you could say that it's good. But I think when it turns out that most voters don't care about this topic, they don't think it's what politicians should be focused on, and they don't necessarily agree with the liberal positions on it. And even if they do, they might not be that impressed because the work product being delivered here is not actually changing any of the laws on this. Right. And so it's like, why do that? No, that's not to say, I think a lot of the ideas in that package are like pretty good. If you had agreement among members of Congress and you wanted to do it, I mean, like, that's fine. People try to win elections for a reason. But, you know, why would you do a show vote on anything ever, mm -hmm. right? It's to drive attention to a topic. So you might want 
to drive attention to certain topics because you think there are political benefits to it, even if you can't pass the thing. Uh, but this voting rights issue, you know, was just a classic example where that doesn't, I think, work. I, I also, you know, I started thinking about this a lot during the 2020 primaries when a lot of activist groups seemed to feel it was very important to try to get Democratic candidates on record as supporting unrealistic and unpopular ideas, right? So they successfully got Biden, for example, to commit to repealing the Hyde Amendment. The, the Hyde Amendment is a longstanding federal law that prohibits the federal government from paying for abortions. Right. Um, so he had had a pro-Hyde position his whole career. He flip-flops. He's gone from the popular stance, which is like pro-choice but no federal funding, to an unpopular stance. And I mean, here we are, and the Hyde Amendment is not getting repealed. And that was 100% predictable at the time. You know, like, this wasn't a activists are pushing Biden to take an unpopular position because they're going to score a policy win. They were just doing it, like, I don't know why. As a, as a demonstration of muscle. Can, can we take a step back for a second? You're talking about, you know, you, you don't want to take unpopular positions. You want to say popular things about the issues that are salient to voters, or at least issues that you can make salient. How do you figure out what any of those things are? We had a couple of pollsters on here a couple of weeks ago talking about the, the difficulty of issue polling. There's sort of two difficulties. One is it, it's, it's hard to actually ask questions that get at the answers to, you know, what do voters want on issues and which issues do they really care about, in part because of some stuff you described earlier. There's a lot of stuff voters haven't thought about very deeply. And then there's the additional problem that a lot of the issue polling is done by groups whose goal isn't really to figure out what voters think. It's to convince people that voters think what the groups already think um, so that they can say, see, my thing is popular. Now, now go do it. So how do you approach this when you're encouraging politicians to talk about popular things and focus on things that will, will make them more popular? How do you figure out what's popular and what people care about in the first place? You know, I mean, I agree it is difficult on certain things. And, you know, if, if somebody wants to say, look, like we just can't tell you know, like what people want us to say on this. I mean, I, I think that's fine. I think that when you try, I mean, if you really want to know as a candidate or as a party committee that the people who do surveys are actually pretty good at coming up with ways to sort of, you know, test arguments and do fair polls if that's what they want, it is definitely true that activist groups kind of pollute the discourse uh, by putting out, you know, <laughs> push polls and, and things like that. So you have to you have to sort of want to know, right? And part of the contention, I mean, a, a lot of my writing on this has come out of my conversations over the years with with David Shore, who does a lot of message test polling uh, for party committees and and allied super uh, super PACs, things like that. Um, and you know, so part of his argument is like the value of um, his own work, and you should hire him to go research this stuff. <laughs> but some of it is on things where I do think that the public opinion is pretty well known and well understood. You know, I mean, I think that everybody agrees that making energy more expensive is unpopular. Um, everybody agrees, because you can see this in all kinds of surveys, that people put some value on diversity, you know, racial and ethnic diversity and things, but they don't like explicit quotas. They don't like explicit um, sort of uh, weight and, and consideration of, of that kind of thing. And, you know, Democrats, I shouldn't just say Democrats, uh, politicians from both parties face a fair amount of pressure to uphold the values of their base, even when those values are unpopular. But I think that the insiders in the conservative movement have gotten 
reasonably uh, sophisticated about the fact that it would be counterproductive to ask politicians to stand up and say, I don't believe in clean air and clean water regulations. I really want to tear down environmental restrictions of all kinds, right? And like, that's in fact what they do, right? I mean, they're quite hostile across the board to environmental regulations. Conservative interest groups, um, you know, they like, they don't want regulations that burden their businesses. But the politicians say, oh, this climate stuff goes too far. You know, I just want people to be able to heat their homes in the winter. And there's a certain level of like trust that the movement functions to deliver on its goals. Whereas I think a lot of the progressive groups feel that they are constantly being betrayed by Democratic mm-hmm. elected officials. And so they need to put them through these kind of like shit tests where it's like you go up and I I want to see you, you know, vow to walk the plank because that's the only way I can have confidence in you. And I think that has become a very dysfunctional and counterproductive way to do politics. And and you you saw it just recently with Biden and the pledge to pick a, a black woman for the Supreme Court, right? Where it's, he already made that pledge. Um, you know, he he made it publicly. He made it to Jim Clyburn. It's something that's important to some people in the party. It's a little bit of like an embarrassing thing to put out there in such an explicit way. Is it unusual? Ronald Reagan promised in 1980 that he was going to put a woman on the Supreme Court. Right. But Ronald Reagan was a conservative Republican who at the time was seen as potentially too far right for America, right? He he was the leader of the right-wing faction of Republicans. So him doing a kind of explicit quota thing for women probably rubbed some people the wrong way, but it probably rubbed his base the wrong way, right? It's a way of, a, for him, it's a way of appealing to swing voters. Um, you know, for Biden, I don't think it's bad to commit to like doing diversity appointments in the Supreme Court. I would defend it. But why pressure him to reiterate the pledge publicly? Like, I 100% believe that Biden will do it. So just clap when he does it. But but actually, this is a good opportunity to talk about salience, though, because, you know, I, I you're, you're correct that affirmative action is one of the worst polling uh, planks of the Democratic Party when you when you when you do reasonably high quality mm-hmm. issue polling. That tends to be something that comes out under on, on the low end of popularity. And I think that there are elections conceivably where this stuff matters when you're doing, you know, policies about school admissions or that sort of thing. I don't buy that this is a, that this thing about the Supreme Court justice is a salient issue. I don't I don't buy that Biden is losing any votes in a reelect or in a midterm election because people are mad about this pledge he made about the Supreme Court, even even if they don't like it. I don't think it's an issue that that people care a lot about. So may, maybe maybe I'm wrong about that. But uh, but how do you approach salience? Because that's the other thing you can, you can poll and figure out. You know, hey, you know these things are popular and what and what progressives will say to you about Biden trying to do things popular is they'll say, you know, take all the individual provisions of the Build Back Better Act, mm-hmm. um, this package of social and environmental spending that is currently stalled in Congress, and you'll generally find that they pull well. People say, you know, I like this provision, I like this provision. So they they would say, we are doing popularism. Here's our agenda. It's popular. It pulls well. And we're trying to pass it. That is popularism. Now, my objection to that, which I, ex- I suspect is your objection, is that the, this gets the salience all wrong. That these are not issues that voters care a lot about. 
Um, and focus, you're focusing on them and not focusing on certain other things to do with inflation or various things that, that people actually care more about. And so that's, you know, the, the, the fact that you can get a poll to say that, that people support this provision, that doesn't actually mean that you're doing popularism. I would think that's a reason to think that, you know, that, that it's a pretty, uh, that it's a pretty cost, low cost thing to, to throw to activists to say explicitly again and again, you know, my, my appointee to the Supreme Court will be a black woman rather than simply doing that. Um, um making it an, I, I, I think the salience thing cuts two ways here. I think that, you know, the salience thing means that I, I don't think there's likely a significant political cost to Joe Biden here. I also don't think there's a meaningful political benefit to the Democratic Party from the Build Back Better push. Yeah, I mean, I think I agree with with both of those points. Um, I might frame it a little bit different. Here's what I was thinking of. You know, um, after um, Breyer announced his retirement, uh, both Ayanna Presley, Jamal Bowman, a few other members of Congress, they went up on Twitter saying, you know, at POTUS, it's time for a black woman on the Supreme Court. At POTUS, you promised us a black woman on the Supreme Court. Let's see it happen. Now, I'm not going to tell you that you're losing votes over this. I agree. It's not super high salience. But these are members of Congress in safe seats trying to drive up the salience of an issue that were it to become salient, I think would be damaging, right? So the question is like, why do that? Right. Like, why not just kind of let it slide? He's made the commitment. He's doing what you want. You know, kind of let it go. Build back better. Um, you know, the main reason to pass bills is because you think that the provisions of the bills are good um, and that they are important. Uh, what's good about Build Back Better is that its individual provisions are pretty popular and you are not seeing a significant backlash or counter mobilization to it. And that itself, I think, is a significant political achievement, right? And it's like not because Joe Biden is super popular at the moment, because you could imagine a situation where Biden is just like a political king and like nobody dares oppose him. But his numbers have actually gotten quite bad. And even so, there aren't people out there marching in the streets being like, uh, matching grants to states to do pre-K uh, is evil. <laughs> and, and so like, that's good. I mean, that's smart policy construction. I think when the White House says, this is an example of them doing popularism. I think it sort of is. The reason that it's not like a cure-all to the universe is, as you say, this is Democrats pulling off the shelf uh, some of their long-standing ideas that they believe in, and that's great. Uh, that's like what you what you deliver for the. I, I think in a real way, you were talking about like what's the base? The base is the people who vote mm -hmm. for you no matter what. This is what the right. base wants. These are ideas that they have been cooking on since Obama's second term. It's good to deliver for your base. You don't win elections that way. Like by definition, the marginal voters, whether they're drop-off voters or swing voters, are the people who are like not super jazzed up about your party's permanent platform. And you know, those people, they're worried about COVID or they're worried about COVID restrictions, they're worried about inflation, they're worried about their jobs, you know, the the hurly-burly of, of daily life. And I think that there's sort of blame to go around, but the different factions dragging out the Build Back Better debate forever and ever and ever, like, I think that's really harmful compared to agreeing on something, doing it, and then like turning the page to now we're talking about how we're going to help you with the problem you care about. Yeah. I mean, I think th the other thing is there are certain portions of the Build Back Better bill that if they actually became a law, 
I think would produce some unintended consequences that would be quite unpopular. In particular, I think that the child care subsidy provisions would be likely to, to wreak a lot of havoc in the actual market for child care and create shortages. And a lot of people would find, you know, I'm, I'm getting a voucher for child care in theory, but I can't actually use it or I make a little too much money to get the voucher. And now it's become really expensive because of all of these regulatory requirements they impose. So I think I think that's related to the sort of the failure to make choices. Some of the stuff you end up with, you know, you, you try to please all the all the constituencies and you end up with a design that would be neither popular nor effective if you actually were to implement it. And so that's another down the road popularity problem. Yes. I mean, that that one in, in, in particular is a bad one. I mean, I think I think it's the opposite in some ways of, um, you know, what was it Nancy Pelosi said about the Affordable Care Act? She said, uh, we have to pass the law so people can find out what was in it. Right. And, you know, a lot of people dunked on her over that, uh, but it worked, right? It's once people had the benefits, mm-hmm. they were working pretty well and taking them away was very unpopular. Some of Build Back Better has that quality, but the daycare subsidy in particular is like the opposite. I think it sounds good until you find out what's in it. And it's, it would actually be very disruptive. Um, I, I I have a reasonable amount of confidence that, that that's going to get taken out. Um, a completely separate critique of Democrats, though, from the popularism is that they have gotten sloppy about that actual policy design piece, where a lot of members... Um, are aware that there is a serious design flaw in the childcare thing, and they are essentially counting on Joe Manchin to make them take it out. In which case, they can say to the group, they can say, "Oh, I'm so mad at Joe Manchin for having taken that out." <laughs> but like, you know, actually, they'll be they'll be glad that it's gone. That they don't want to make coalition trouble by actually being the ones to tell Patty Murray that she's kind of screwed this up. That. They, they want Joe to do it. And part of the holdup right now is that like Manchin doesn't want to be the black hat on everything. He wants people in leadership to step up and say, you know what, we have to make some choices. We got to scrap the programs that aren't politically tenable, et cetera, et cetera. And, you know, I, I, I sympathize with everybody's problems here, but mm-hmm. ultimately, um, the guy from the R plus 29 state is doing everybody a favor by not retiring. And you sort of, you got to help him out. Yeah. So what are the typical critiques that you'll hear of popularism is basically that, that it's almost morally nihilistic, that there are certain things that are important to do that are not popular uh, and you have to do them. And now I realize you, you talk a lot about that. It's it's about what you talk about. It's not necessarily about what you what you do. And I know there are some examples related to climate where we had sort of secret Congress things happened that didn't have a lot of political salience that moved the ball in a good direction on climate. And that's sort of the, the right model that you want to try to do this as quietly as possible. But you can't do everything quietly. So what if there's something important that you're going to have to talk a bunch about if you're going to get it done and you may have to like muscle it through and convince some people in your party to do something that's unpopular. How does the frame of popularism help you figure out when to do that, when the moral necessity of getting this thing done requires incurring significant political costs in order to do it by making voters watch you do something unpopular and talk about it? I mean, it's tough. I I think doing the right thing is a little bit overrated in politics. Um, (laughs) I mean, to give an example, um, 
I really like I strongly agreed with the Biden administration's approach to Afghanistan, like on the merits. I thought that that was the right thing to do. I think that is a great example of political courage that the Trump administration and the Obama administration both knew that the war in Afghanistan was unwinnable. But then in order to spare themselves personal political embarrassment, they kind of kept playing the string out. And I think it's like horrifying that people died not to win a war, but just to kind of kick the can down the road to the next administration. I think, you know, I remember John Kerry, I don't remember because I wasn't alive, but I have seen the footage of John Kerry as an anti-Vietnam War guy saying, how do you ask a man to be the last man to die for a mistake? I think that's like all very compelling. And yet, like, you look at how that worked out for Biden, the kind of like bold, rip the Band-Aid, I won't leave this problem to my successor kind of thing. It's like hurt him a lot in the numbers. And because it hurt him, it's left him in a weakened position to do the right thing on other topics. And I think it's really challenging in a global sense to kind of like say how useful that is. Um, Foreign policy, though, is a little bit special in that presidents really can act unilaterally. You know, so there's there's a stronger case there than elsewhere for just kind of toughing it out and taking the hit. When you're talking about legislation, I mean, it's really challenging to sort of muscle unpopular stuff through in a high salience way and have it stick in a way that really works. Um, I don't know that it's a great idea um, in in general. But, you know, if you want to do it, like, I'm not totally against it. I just think people should be realistic about the costs, you know, that if you come in and you tell yourself, well, if we pass the Affordable Care Act, uh, voters are going to love us and it's going to save us in the midterms, you're going to create real miscalculations. If you tell yourself, yeah, we'll probably lose the midterms, uh, we'll probably lose some extra seats at the margin here, but you know, we'll bounce back. Politics is long. The program itself will be durable. That's like a totally reasonable calculus. It's to me a little bit of an odd pairing for the current, I don't want to call it hysteria, but I will say elevated sense of alarm. I'll call it hysteria. About the... <laughs> You can call it hysteria. Yes, there yeah. is an elevated sense of alarm among progressives about the prospect of Republicans ever winning elections at any level. To the extent that you believe that that is true, you ought to be incredibly cautious in your policymaking. I think that there's a bit of hysteria there and that it's fine to say, look, we are putting some seats at risk for the sake of um, the climate provisions of the Build Back Better law because we just think those provisions are important. But then you have to try to be coherent. You know, I, I want everyone to sort of turn it down a notch on all of it, you know, to push a little less hard on the policymaking for the sake of political prudence, to push a little less hard on the hysteria about the collapse of democracy so that you can make some policy with, with your feet under you and just in general try to be a little bit more chill. I want to turn and ask you about uh, an op-ed that you wrote 
in the New York Times a little more than a week ago, um, basically giving President Biden advice on how he can be more popular and saying, you know, we need to get back to normal. And we're not back to normal. Back to normal means that you find a time to lift the mask mandate on airplanes and in other places where the federal government is setting that mask mandate. And you need to really jawbone school district leaders to go back to fully normal operations by the fall with no masks. And you treat COVID like any other respiratory illness where people stay home if they're feeling sick, not based on some complex testing protocol. And so, and your conceit basically is that if he, if Biden gets us back to normal like this, he'll be more popular. When I look at that issue polling and you ask people whether they favor mask mandates in schools and various other places, they say yes on average. Those, those provisions are popular. So why do you think it's popular to go back to normal? You can look in these polls and people, people say that there are various abnormal things they want to continue doing. No, I mean, I absolutely agree. I mean, either I am completely wrong uh, on, on this topic, or this is a good example of um, acquiescence bias polluting the issue polling. Right. Ac- acquiescence bias is basically people like to say yes. And if you ask them if something is a good idea, they'll tend to say yes. Right. So so there are some topics on which I have seen like detailed, sophisticated message tests where you try to ask the question both ways. You try to give pro and con arguments. Like there, there are ways to kind of... Uh, do this in a survey. I have not seen an effort to do that on mask mandates. What I've seen is the the real world evidence. Um, you know, here in I live in Washington D.C. and compliance with the mask mandates when the mayor has put them on has been very high. There doesn't seem to be a lot of people upset at her over it here, as far as I can tell. Uh, I've been to New York City, and similarly, people seem to mostly have followed whatever rules that the mayor and governor has put on. I've also been to Norfolk, Virginia, and I've been to Austin, Texas, which are, those are like pretty liberal cities. Those are left of center places in the United States. And even there, mask use levels have been very low. Not nobody doing it, but sort of half-hearted compliance with officially posted signs, nobody doing it places where it's not up. I think we saw Glenn Youngkin do very well in Virginia. I think we saw Terry McAuliffe try to use COVID hawkery as like the key issue against him. It did not work very well. Youngkin has proceeded, I would say, pretty boldly on a COVID normalization agenda and more gingerly on what I would have considered like a traditional, like what were we arguing about in politics 10 years ago mm-hmm. kind of kind of thing. We haven't seen his numbers tanking. We haven't seen backlash against any Republican incumbents anywhere for not being kind of COVID hawkery enough. So my guess is that if we tried to do really like detailed scientific uh, polling on this kind of things, we would see that it's not very popular. That if you say to people, you know, should we set a date to end COVID emergency? Like people would say yes, uh, but I don't really know. I mean, it's challenging to just gather from casual perusal of of the media environment. You know, in terms of Biden specifically on normalcy, I think it's important to just remember how central that was actually to his campaign, going back to before COVID, right? I mean, the criticism of Biden from progressives during the Democratic primary was all this guy's going to want to do is get us back to normal. And lots of people did not like that. They wanted to try to leverage Trump and the many problems with Trump and his clowning and incompetence and kind of just like vile personality into transformative policy change. 
And Biden was the candidate who was seen as like not offering that. And it turned out to be a, a winning message for him, you know, in the primary, in a general election that was closer than people kind of thought. And I think the more he can be seen as delivering on that promise, that's a win for him. So I asked on Twitter for people to send in questions for this conversation. And, and one question I got from two different listeners uh, was they would like to know what the biggest area of disagreement is between you and me, because I think people see us on, on Twitter in, in agreement about a lot of things. And I had a couple of ideas on this. The first is, is a sign that there should be a lot of underlying disagreement between us, which is to say that in 2020, I was for Joe Biden, the return to normal candidate, uh, and you were for Bernie Sanders in the 2020 primary. Uh, so would first of all, would Bernie be doing a better job right now than Joe Biden? That's an interesting question. Um, I think actually probably not. If you read my Bernie piece, I mean, you, you try to do your best when you make pieces. Uh, but I think that that piece holds up really poorly. So um, do I. In particular, like, it holds up worse than you even might have thought. Because like two specific things I said I liked about Bernie more than Biden were that Bernie is more dovish on foreign policy and Bernie is more of like a full employment uh, gung-ho kind of guy. So those were my, like on the substance, two biggest concerns about Biden. And Biden has been great on both of those topics. So like I had, this was not like a political critique of Biden. You know, it was like an on the merits who will do the right thing. Uh, so Biden has done the right thing. Uh, on the things that I thought he wouldn't do the right thing on. So then politically, 2020 was close when I think it wasn't always obvious that it was going to be close. And Bernie just would have lost, uh, whereas yeah. Biden won. So that's good. Um, at the time those pieces were coming together, I thought Biden was dead in the water. I mean, I, I uh, if you go back to Vox's package of articles on that, Laura McGann wrote our case for Biden. I think, you know, she's a good friend of mine. She was my editor. We worked very closely together. I think that piece holds up great. At the time it was published, I thought her argument had a lot of merit to it. I thought that was a good article, but I thought it was like pissing in the wind. You know, Biden was like in fifth place. And I do think that Bernie Sanders had, or at least has at times, had frankly a sounder approach to politics than some of the other less left, but to the left of Biden politicians. That there's a reason why, if you look at non college voters, it was a Biden Bernie margin. Right. And not a like Biden Harris Bernie margin in there, right. that these are both politicians who center material issues rather than like avant-garde cultural politics. But Bernie 2016 was much better on those terms than Bernie 2020. And he moved over the course of the 2020 campaign in, I think, a less and less sound direction, even while Biden over the course of 2020, um, I've just liked more and more. Well, but the the other thing that I find funny about your Bernie endorsement, since you're now like Mr. Popularism, is that I think Bernie personally endorses this view. Certainly a lot of the people who are big fans of Bernie endorse this view. They're very big on the mobilization thing. They say, look at all these people out there who aren't voting because none of the politicians speak to their interests. And Bernie is going to bring all these people out of the woodwork and get them to vote and build a new coalition. 
um, which is wrong. And and I assume that you thought that was wrong at the time. And so to the extent that you had an electoral theory of Bernie, it was significantly different than Bernie's electoral theory of Bernie, which I, I feel like should be a red flag. Like, you know, if the candidate is out there with a theory of how he's going to win and you think that theory is just nonsense, that probably isn't a good sign about that candidate's positioning. I mean, I don't really know. You know, I think when you have seen Bernie Sanders in tough races historically, which has been a while, but, you know, his races in the 90s were genuinely contested elections, tough ones. And, you know, he um, won his first election as mayor of Burlington thanks to a police union endorsement. He courted and received the NRA's endorsement to beat Democrats in House races. And so I always thought that Bernie was a guy who's actual ground level understanding of politics was much more, um, frankly, reasonable than his like pie in the sky kind of theory of politics. And it's hard to say, you know, like what would have actually happened if Bernie had been the general election nominee? Uh, At this point, I'm really pretty uncertain and do not stand by uh, the analysis offered (laughs) in that article. I What I do stand by is the fact that Bernie, as a practical politician, I think had shown more uh, flexibility and smarts than he's often given credit for. I mean, I think the other problem Bernie would have had is a problem that Joe Biden has right now, which is the Elizabeth Warren voter problem. The non-college educated voters in the Democratic Party and the the Bernie-Biden margin on their voting, It's the whole party is staffed by people with college degrees who tend to be well to the left of the average Democratic voter, let alone the average voter. Um, to, to a first approximation, it's Elizabeth Warren supporters. Um, and, and importing all of the Elizabeth Warren theory of politics, which I, I think you and I would agree is, is worse than both the Biden theory and the Bernie theory of how you win elections. And I think he... I think you were seeing this some in the 2020 campaign where you're describing him getting away from some of what was a success in 2016. And I think it would have been an even bigger issue if you were over actually overseeing an administration that sort of, you know, people who like to use the term Latinx would be advising him on what to do in all sorts of policy areas and giving him very unpopular ideas to implement. I mean, this is the big problem Democrats are facing is the principles uh, tend to be old you know, like, which is fine. And old people, even college graduates, tend to be more in touch with the median voter who is also old than younger people. But all of the work is done by young college graduates who live in DC and New York, and they're insane and out of touch. (laughs) And it's like, it's a really serious problem. Now, it should be noted, all due respect, I mean, Chuck Rocha, who who did uh, Hispanic outreach for Bernie's campaign, was an early proponent of please stop calling people next. Oh, he's great. Um, you know, and, and is a good a good person and a good influence there. Um, but this is a challenge that everybody faces. I mean, it's a huge problem for Joe Biden that I suspect that outside of the very top tier of senior appointees in the White House, that there are very few people in his administration who um, were enthusiastic about Joe Biden as a, a primary nominee, or who even in retrospect understand the wisdom of, of Bidenism. Because, you know, people can learn. And I would consider myself, you know, a, um, a, a, a convert on the road to Damascus. Uh, but what I don't see is a lot of people saying, oh, Joe Biden showed us the way to win. We need to assimilate Joe Biden thought into ourselves and do the technical policy work. Because like, there's a reason why you don't staff an administration with like non-college retirement age 
people. You know, it's like you you need like people who have technical knowledge and and you know skills and like the energy to work weird late nights and stuff like that. But they need to assimilate the political wisdom of that. You know, the Biden's primary campaign was so threadbare. He he actually benefited, I think, from his difficulty recruiting the like quote unquote top tier Democratic Party political <laughs> talent because they were left very dependent on like Biden's rep as like this guy had been around a long time and was Barack Obama's VP and his sort of off the cuff cranky old man uh, I don't like Trump uh, persona and like that was good and the better he has done the more um, staff he's amassed I think actually gets him more trouble and you really see this with Kamala Harris who was like a much better politician as a random I don't say random she was the district attorney of San Francisco Uh, and as she's gotten further up in politics she's become more and more of a star and has attracted more and more talent and has gotten, I think, less effective. I, well, th- that's another podcast. I have, I have a number of theories about <laughs> what went wrong there. Um, the other area of disagreement that uh, seemed clear to me, and one where I, I, I don't think you've come around to my view in the way that you have on some of the, the Biden-Bernie stuff, uh, is about the judiciary, that you and I have very different views about what the judiciary is for, how well it's performing. I've been, you know, it's certainly, you know, so long as it, it was, you know, Kennedy or Roberts at the meeting of the Supreme Court, I was much happier with performance at the Supreme Court than you've been. And so basically, I mean, you you oppose judicial review, right? You would you would have like a much weaker judicial system where the courts can't stop the Congress from enacting laws that the president signs, right? Well, I mean, I want to be clear. I don't think that eliminating judicial review in the American political system would necessarily be a good idea because the American system is a concatenation of like different weird 18th century contrivances. And I think you've got to be careful because a lot of the time what the Supreme Court does, like in the uh, marriage equality case, the Supreme Court imposed a popular solution on the recalcitrant elected branches of government because for various complicated coalitional reasons, you know, it was sort of hard to go get done. I think that the best political systems, though, um, like the Canadian one uh, or the British one, do not have this kind of judicial override. You know, in terms of the American Supreme Court, my strongest criticism of the American Supreme Court is of the people who talk about the Supreme Court. Like it's like some big thing and that like we need the constitutional law guys to, you know, peer into their wisdom and go do whatever. You know, Anthony Kennedy, he was like a moderate Republican. I agreed with him about some stuff. I disagreed with him about some other stuff. Uh, There's a lot of worse people in American politics out there uh, than him. There's some better ones. I don't think it was the end of the world that he, for a while, had kind of veto over congressional legislation. But I don't think we should make that out to be, you know, more than it was. Well, but I, I mean, I guess the other thing is, you know, I, I think it's it's sort of like journalism, where it's like, you know, objectivity is not really possible, but striving for it is still good. And outlets do better when they try to, like, they have some theory of how to be objective that they're trying to follow rather than just saying, you know, hey, nobody's objective, so we're just going to put opinion into everything. I think similarly with judging, like, there's no such thing as calling balls and strikes. But filling the courts with people who, like, contend that that's what they're doing and then hopefully having some sort of political balance of them that some, some sort of comes close to reflecting the country, that's better than if you just abandoned that and called the court completely political. And I think if, you know, certainly if you look at the handling of stuff around the 2020 election, 
um, the Republicans who sit as judges were more responsible than Republicans who sit as elected officials. I think that the system is is working to some extent, and basically, this you know these these fictions that annoy you about you know how rarefied the court is. I think is actually pushing people toward certain norms and toward the idea that the Constitution at least sometimes means something and that you can't just, you know, make up whatever you want all the time about what what laws are. Um, I think that's producing better results than if you had a, a system that w- that really truly was purely political. And so that's why that doesn't that doesn't bother me when you have the sort of, you know, the hoity-toity lawyers talking about how, you know, we, you know, well, we are we're collegial and we try to figure out what the law is. I, I think that's actually very often a useful fiction. Well, as long as Justice Breyer realizes that it's in fact completely appropriate for him to strategically time his retirement. Which he does. Uh, which I'm great. I'm, which, I'm really like, glad to see that. Which most of I, these people do. Yes. Um, you know, I had uh, uh, some concern that he might uh, believe a little too much in some of the things he was saying. Um, Justice Ginsburg obviously developed an unhealthy sense of her own um, indispensability <laughs> at a certain point in history. And, you know, that was pretty bad. You know, on journalism, I, I actually think that's an interesting question because I feel like the people who do journalism best are often not the ones who are most kind of cloaked in the mythos of objectivity, but just the people who take um, take their work seriously enough to, like, care whether they're coming to the right answer or not. I mean, a lot of people do bad, sloppy opinion journalism where they're tossing out takes that are total nonsense. But you also will hear, you know, people from the hard news genre, if they get a complaint where someone's like, oh, like this story is really bad. You're like damaging the world. Well, they'll act as if there's no element of judgment in what they're doing. And they'll be like, I'm just reporting the news. And like, no one is just reporting the news. Like you're deciding what goes on the front page, what goes in the lead, what the headline is. Like it's, you know, it's a craft, right? And when people convince themselves that it isn't and that they're not making decisions, I think they start making kind of sloppy decisions. I, th- there's some of that, but I, I, I think the flip side of it is I, I think a lot of people who basically, you know, say, well, people complain about both sidesism. And, and I think you're right that sometimes people, you know, they make out that there's an equivalence where there isn't. But the flip side of that is people who are like, well, you know, well, I don't, you know, one side is wrong and therefore I don't have to address what they have to say. I think you end up with, frankly, like a lot of what the output is at Vox. And, you know, I, I realize that you're a co-founder of Vox, but like, I think, I think you get a lot of people who like, don't even, don't even bother to try to understand how the other side feels. And then they therefore make mistakes. They make analytical mistakes about, you know, they can't even accurately describe what it is that Republicans think they're up to. Right. I think that like that is a fully adequate explanation of what's wrong with that. That like you cannot write an accurate piece of journalism unless you can accurately describe what it is that the people on the other side are doing. Right. But I think the fiction of objectivity forces people into the, the, it creates that step where you have to try to understand what the other side is thinking. I really disagree. I mean, I think especially if you look at like the older newspaper work, um, that it tended to display almost no effort to understand what either side is thinking, that there was just a kind of um, a kind of like lazy, like I'm just like writing down stuff kind of aspect to it. And that one of the positive contributions that more 
opinionated journalism has brought to the world is more of a sense that like you should in fact try to dig into these controversies and like say what's up with them. Um, it is definitely true that some people uh, do stuff badly. Um, but I just, you know, I, I don't really agree that kind of the mythos of objectivity is the way to to get there. I want to ask you about Joe Rogan. Uh, oh, Joe Rogan, obviously. Yes, yes, very good friend of yours. Uh, controversial this week. I mean, in any given week, I believe he is still the the most listened to podcast host in in at least in English speaking podcasts. Um, so y- you were on Joe Rogan's show. What was it? A year and a half ago at this point, something like that. To promote your your book, One Billion Americans. What what was it like going on that show? <laughs> it's weird. Um, you know, I mean, the main thing I would say to people who are doing. Um, political yakking, is that it is just very different vibe from a politics show. You know, when you're out selling a book, you go on like a lot of podcasts, a lot of radio shows. And I did some with friendly hosts. I did some with leftist hosts. But like I did Ben Shapiro. I did Glenn Beck, you know, very conservative people. What they all have in common is like strong beliefs about American politics and a strong ideological position and a lot of detailed takes on a lot of things and they really want to like argue with you about it. Rogan's show is like talking to, you know, somebody you might meet on the road at a hotel bar and he's like, what's your book about? And you say, one billion (laughs) Americans. And he's like, aren't we going to run out of farmland? And I'm like, here's my talking points as to why that's not true. And this is a guy who like both doesn't know anything about this and also (laughs) sort of doesn't care, but also just wants to keep talking, you know, and... But sort of does I mean, care, right? Like, I mean, he he is a good interviewer. He's like, an he, excellent interviewer. And, and you know, yeah. look, there's a reason why he's been successful as a stand-up comedian, successful as a guy on news radio, successful as an MMA fight host, successful on Fear Factor. Like, he's very good. <laughs> he's, he's much better than me at, like, being an on-air personality. And he has a wide range of interests and he has interesting conversations with lots of people. But he's just like, he's not a political pundit. You know, he's not super into developing a completely coherent ideological framework and digging into the contours of, of American political debates. And that's why I just have always thought that this idea that progressives should try to use the bullying tactics on him that they use on each other is like really misguided because he's not going to like he's not going to do it he doesn't he doesn't care about being <laughs> exiled from the progressive community like we we were talking about my book and then we talked for great length about Quentin Tarantino movies and <laughs> you know um Hong Kong heroic bloodshed cinema and that's like I don't know he just like wants to talk about a lot of stuff but so then, I mean, people are talking about basically like what to do about the problem of Joe Rogan. And and I, I, I say that in a slightly mocking way, although like, you know, it's not great that he's having people on his show to sow doubt about vaccines. No, it's actually quite bad. Yeah, it's, it's a bad thing. And, and, and even though, you know, his fans will point out, well, he also has people who like the vaccines on the show, which is but like, you know, it's, it, this is misinformation getting out to people, causing them to make choices that are harmful to their, their health. It's a bad thing. 
But so I, I think the idea that you can sort of try to like shame and shun him away so that people won't hear the, the, this misinformation is just completely unworkable. You can't get rid of him. People like him. If you, if you manage to get him kicked off Spotify, out of Spotify's walled garden, he'd go back into a normal, widely distributed podcast that would actually have more listeners because you'd be able to hear it in more places. But so what is there to do about this problem? I mean, I, I, I sort of look at him, what, what you're describing, like he doesn't have strong ideological commitments. I think it's, you know, like there's not a lot of point trying to argue with Laura Ingram and convince her that like what she's saying about vaccines is wrong and she should say something different. But Rogan, who seems kind of guileless, like I, I think one thing that you can actually do there is you can actually sort of talk to him forthrightly because whatever nonsense ideas he has, I think he comes by by and large honestly. And if you have an open conversation with him about that, you might not convince him, but at least it creates a conversation that might convince some of his listeners. I mean, I think I think that's the most effective thing available here. But I don't know what do you what do you see as what to do about this this problem of Joe Rogan and vaccines? I mean, what what to do about Joe Rogan is just like very literally to try really hard to get booked on his show and <laughs> talk to him about stuff and, and explain your idea. No, because you know before that, this Spotify controversy. The people trying to get him kicked off Spotify, they're just like, they're technically wrong about what the consequences of that would be. But pre-Spotify, they led this, I didn't know a lot about Joe Rogan, except that I love news radio, until Bernie Sanders went on The Rogan Show. And a lot of people criticized Bernie for that, basically because Rogan had said, um, uh, some some stuff about trans women athletes that was not well received uh, by activists, and that I, I would say mixed a fairly mainstream political opinion about sports with a rude and uh, untoward, you know, just like statements about trans women and and how you characterize that situation. And so there was this idea that progressives should shun him and should refuse to go on his show. And when I went on his show, I mean, I took, you never know when people criticize a politician, like you never know if it's something they actually mean or if it's just kind of BS. Right. Uh, but I went on the show and, you know, I got yelled at by some internet haters, but also by like friends of mine, people people I know in, in real life and were not trying to dunk on me on Twitter. We're like, personally, yeah. like, this is really hurtful. Like, you shouldn't do this. You shouldn't give credence and, and credibility to someone who's so harmful. And but really, he's I, giving credence and credibility to you because he's way more famous than you. Yes, but I mean, you know, there are different communities, right? I mean, there is a universe of people who care a lot more what Josh Barrow says than what Joe Rogan says. So, <laughs> you know, that's fine. But what I said at the time is, look, if you say that nobody who self-identifies as progressive should go on this show because of Joe Rogan's position on trans women in mixed martial arts competitions, what's going to happen is that the only political opinions his audience will hear will be conservative opinions. And the only people he will think are like nice people who are worth engaging with are conservative people. And I think what we're seeing play out with the vaccines is in part a downstream consequence of the success of that kind of shunning campaign. That he created a situation in which, you know, lots of academics and journalists and people who want good reputation in the progressive world started anathematizing a guy who, you know, is a mixed bag of political opinions. But 
if everybody tells you all day, I mean, so I, I do this professionally. So people yelling at me all day that like, I'm like on the far right, because um, <laughs> I don't think, you know, because like, I think public schools are important or something doesn't impact <laughs> me that much. Like I live in Washington, DC, I cover politics professionally. I know what yeah. the issues are. I know what the landscape is. That being said, like, a consequence of me being, you know, canceled in the summer of 2020 for thinking there should be police departments is I like came to know more right of center people and to talk to them more and learn more about their ideas and they persuade me of certain things. And so if you anathematize somebody who is such a big platform that you can't actually hurt them, all you do is you push them, you push their audience away from you. I, I really wish he would give his audience better advice about vaccines. But like the best way to get that is to go on the show. So one thing I'm wondering is, are there really liberals refusing to go on Rogan's podcast? Because we got a, a couple of questions of, of this nature, basically about say, agreeing with you saying, yeah, it would be, you know, why don't more liberals go on Rogan's show? That would be a great thing. And I think a lot of these questions sort of have this implication that like en masse, there are people refusing to appear on Rogan's podcast. I mean, I, for one, have never been invited on Joe Rogan's podcast. I'm willing to go. Joe Rogan, call me. I will be happy to come talk to you about why vaccines are good or, or anything else. Um, but like, I don't think we know that Joe Biden was invited on the podcast and, and declined, for example. So I don't, you know, the, I, I think it's, 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 it's cheap and easy to say, don't go on Joe Rogan's podcast when you've never been invited on it. It is a very large platform. The sort of people who might be invited on the show generally as, as you did have like, you know, very clear reasons why they would accept that invitation. So I don't, you know, I, I, I wonder about the extent to which this is actually a problem in practice, at least as regards his booking. Now, I think, you know, more broadly, if you, if you know that there's a progressive campaign to boycott you, that might make you feel more negatively toward progressives. Um, I also, as you know, as someone who spent seven years hosting a, a show called Left, Right, and Center, uh, I do find that in general, on all sorts of platforms, conservatives are a little bit easier to work with than liberals in terms of, you know, getting them to show up on time for interviews and that sort of thing. Um, I don't know whether that's about <laughs> they're used to being outsiders in the industry and therefore they, they know that they have to be nicer to people or whether it's about, you know, longstanding political science findings that People who are higher on conscientiousness tend to be conservatives, but it it is something that I that I personally have noticed. I mean, I agree. You know, it's not just about bookings, though. It's about I think like trying to define somebody as beyond the pale yeah. is a is a tricky kind of. And you know, I don't think it's always something that will backfire. Right when you're on the eighty percent side of an eighty twenty issue. You maybe do want to like anathematize the 20 and try to drive it down to 15, 10, 5, something like that. But when you're on the 20 side of an 80-20 issue, it's like it's interesting. There's been a lot of success in getting um uh uniformity in terms of what views are expressed in progressive outlets about certain topics that we know Democrats are divided on. But extending that kind of like bullying logic to people who have at most one foot in the political domain is a very risky move. Uh, speaking of bullying, you said on, on Twitter recently that uh, Joe Rogan fat shamed you into losing 50 pounds. Uh, how much was wow. that a joke? <laughs> <laughs> it's a, I mean, it, that is the sequence of events that there was fat shaming <laughs> and then I have lost weight since then. I don't think I would say it was because of Joe Rogan single-handedly. 
we, we got a listener question about this asking for detail, basically. Well, first of all, did Joe Rogan have to do with it? But also, how did you do it? Diet, exercise, weightlifting, running? How are you feeling about it? Um, I feel terrible. Uh, no, I mean, really? I'm good. It's, it's, no, no. I mean, it's good that it happened. Um, you know, so I, part of this, I mean, I think if you read any weight loss advice on the internet, you know, it's like you got to weigh yourself very regularly. You got to try to keep track of what it is you're eating. And it is amazing to me, but depressing how much like the slightest, you know, relaxation of the discipline, like immediately it, it starts to turn back in the, in the wrong direction. Um, you know, as a, as a heterosexual man, uh, we have a certain greater degree of latitude to like let ourselves go in life. Um, you should know about certain gay subcultures. It's, well, uh, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, maybe <laughs> maybe that's the market for me. Um, you know, but I don't think, you know, it'll come as news to, to gay men or straight women that um, kind of being your best all the time can be challenging um, in its in its own way. But, you know, that's life. But this, I mean, this is an, another interesting area where there's been this sort of suppression of commentary in, in progressive spaces. Because, I mean, you know, the desire to lose weight is extremely common. And, you know, I've had similar experiences to what you're describing about, you know, the difficulty of consistency. You know, I'm weighing, I weigh about 205 pounds. It would be really great if I could weigh about 175 pounds, which I achieved for about four months in 2013. It's really hard, like, you know, and the, like, actually, like, counting of all of the calories. But there, there's a lot of demand for this. And I, obviously, there are unhealthy behaviors around this. But there are also healthy behaviors around this. And it's, you know, the the, the desire to, you know, to get down to the sorts of weights that, you know, that, that you or I might be aiming for is, is a good health desire. There's a part of the progressive culture where it's considered inappropriate to even talk about this stuff. That it's like that it's fat shaming, not not even just to like insult people for their weight, but to even talk about the idea that it would be good or desirable to lose weight or to talk about how to do it. And it also it feels like a real disconnect because obviously, you know, out there there's there's tremendous demand for this stuff and publications about it. And, you know, people spend a lot of time and energy and money on diets. But it's one of those things where it's 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 really weird where there's like there it, it's sort of like people thinking that J.K. Rowling is canceled and not looking at the the books charts. There, there's a there's a part of the discourse where basically you're not even allowed to talk about weight loss. It's weird. Yeah, I mean, that is weird. And there's a version of it that I think is sort of correct, or at least like correctly progressive, which is that we should try to think a little bit less about the kind of like weight loss advice zone and a little bit more about what can we do in a policy sense that would make it easier for people to have healthy lifestyles. But then it pivots all the way around to like even just observing that it would be desirable to have a lower obesity rate is bad, in which case you can't have any kind of policy conversation at all about what you might do in that regard. And so there tends to be this kind of um, flip-flopping from Michelle Obama is trying to make school lunches healthier and is making people mad because it's a little bit out of touch with I think just like some of the difficulties, practical difficulties of dealing with kids. Getting them to eat whole wheat bread and that sort of thing. I mean, just like, I mean, parenting is challenging. Um, <laughs> to, the, to then like flipping back around to like, no, we shouldn't even say that like people are trying to lose weight and that's good. It's a genuinely very difficult in personal life and I think also very difficult as a policy problem to like what well, like, what can we do that would create a healthier environment for people that wouldn't be 
so coercive that there's like incredible backlash. Like it's it's tough. It would be a good thing for people to really be thinking about and talking about and trying to develop sort of viable ideas on because, you know, if you look at like America separate from COVID, you know, very rich country. Uh, we're doing pretty well. America's a pretty good place compared to other places and times in history. Um, but that's definitely an area in which we are struggling. If you wanted to identify something that was like not going great in America, lifestyle-driven population health issues were like really not very good. And it would be productive to try to see if there's something we can come up with there. Uh, let's leave it there for this week. Matt Iglesias writes the Slow Boring newsletter on Substack. Thank you so much, Matt. And let's do this again soon. Thank you. If you'd like to be the first to know about our upcoming podcast topics and to suggest questions for my guests, I encourage you to sign up for the Very Serious newsletter. It's at joshbarrow.com. Subscribers get four issues a week from me. They get special access to our thoughtful, very serious community. And please consider supporting the Very Serious podcast and newsletter as a paying subscriber. Your subscription directly funds this newsletter and podcast. Also, if you've been enjoying the podcast, please talk about it on Twitter or Facebook or annoy your friends and family about it. If you like it and you think other people might like it, uh, I'd encourage you to tell them. We would also like to hear from you. You can reach us at mayo at joshbarrow.com. That is mayo as in mayonnaise, a good note to end on as we've been talking about population health and weight loss. Very Serious is created by me, Josh Barrow, and Sarah Fay. Jennifer Swadek mixed this episode. Our music is by Joshua Mosier. I'm Josh Barrow. This is Very Serious, and I'll be back next week. 